My name is Monica Staten. I am a contributor to the Chicago Jazz Magazine. You are listening to The Future Is Now, a series that I have developed to shine a light on up-and-coming artists in Chicago and beyond. Today's podcast features Angel Bat Dawid. She is a composer, multi-instrumentalist, and vocalist. She's been described as a spiritual jazz soothsayer. On her latest album, Oracle, for which she's received critical acclaim, Angel Bat Dawid overdubbed, mixed, and performed most of the voices and instruments. During our interview, we talked a lot about her early childhood, her travels, and her music inspiration. Your parents were missionaries. You lived in Georgia, uh-huh. Kentucky, and Kenya. And uh-huh. I hear your music, I hear your travels and your music. Um, why did you choose Chicago as your home base? And how long have you lived yeah. here? Yeah, so I was born in Georgia. Mm-hmm. My parents met in Georgia. That's where my mom is from. Mm-hmm. And my dad, so my dad is originally from Louisville, Kentucky. Mm-hmm. So, you know, they met in college. I married. And um, I was born in my, so my other sibling was from Georgia. But then, you know, my dad's from Kentucky. We lived in Kentucky for a while. Mm-hmm. And then um, we lived married. So we lived in Kenya for four years. And then when we came back from Kenya, we lived in Kentucky. And then my parents moved to the Chicago area when I was in high school. And so this is where I've been ever since. So it was more of like a family decision. <laughs> okay, I understand. Okay. Yeah. Um, I interviewed uh, Isaiah uh, Collier uh, about a year ago. Um, uh-huh. He was uh, the person, and he's a, a well-renowned musician here in Chicago as well. Yeah. He was one of... Uh, the people that initially led me to your music. He listed several. (laughs) Yeah. He spoke very highly of you. In fact, when I interviewed him, we're like best friend. We talk like, we probably talk like two, three times a week. Okay. (laughs) Okay. Like my brother, like for real. And he plays in my band, the brotherhood too. Okay. So we're very, very close. Yeah. Yeah. You dominated his interview. (laughs) Yeah, we're very, I have nothing but amazing, wonderful things to say about him as well. We're very, very close friends. Okay. Um, he listed yeah. several locations that sonically describe Chicago's High Park um, influences uh, he used to compose. Um, High Park Records was one of uh, the locations he chose because of your presence. Um, how, yeah. You worked at High Park Records for... A time or? Yes, I worked there. That's actually where me and Isaiah became friends. Mm-hmm. Like he walked through the store and I was already like, my goodness, that's Isaiah Collier. Cause you know, he's like rising superstar, you know, of mm-hmm. Chicago. So when he came in and you know, he's just heard of like his, him being this very, very young composer. I was like very in awe. And then like we started talking and we instantly were like, Oh my goodness, this is my homie. And um that's actually how we started playing together too because I had I hadn't set out the Oracle yet, but I had this really big gig, like it was like my first kind of like, oh wow, I got booked for something cool was the New York Winter Jazz Festival. This was twenty eighteen mm-hmm. and um I needed a drummer. So I was inquiring about him because I was like, yo, you know, yeah, I heard about his brother, but I knew his brother was like really, really young too. Mm-hmm. And I was like, you know, I need a drummer. And Isaiah was like, I play drums. And I was like, what? Wow. And, you know, he's not known to play drums. He's known to play, like, back drums. I was like, I was like, well, I got a gig in New York. Would you be down? And he was like, sure. And I was just so humbled because he was just that open. Like, and I was like, man. And so we all, me and, and the rest of the, the band, the Brotherhood, uh, that's when we kind of became the brotherhood. We all met. We all um, did this amazing road trip from here to New York, and we all just like really bonded in such a way that now it's like that. Those are really my brothers. Okay. And we've been all over the world together. Like, um, so the album, like after that New York Winter Jazz Festival, that's when the Oracle came out. 
And it was just like, I did not expect all the, you know, the wild about it. I really didn't. Mm -hmm. I was like, cool, I got an album. But it was just like when it came out and it was on cassette, I didn't think anybody was listening to it. And like, for around like a week later, I was like getting calls from all sorts of magazines and newspapers. And then, you know, the reader came and I thought they were going to do like a little article and it ended up being like a big feature. It was like, Everything happened so fast. And then literally, I would say like, not even a month later, I get a call for, for a gig in, in, the, in the Netherlands mm-hmm. uh, for this festival. And um, Isaiah went with me, all the brothers we went, and it was like, everything was just rolling after that. Mm-hmm. So, and you also, been, perf- like you also performed in Berlin. Oh. Yes. I'm glad you brought that up. That's going to be my next album. Oh, really? Our next album, yep, is going to be um, our our first show in Berlin. Isaiah wasn't able to go um, on that trip because, you know, he was still in school. Mm-hmm. But what happened was, if you, on the Oracle, if you know, there's one other person on the album, mm-hmm. which is Asher Ganeze, who I met in South Africa. Mm-hmm. Um, and he just so happened, he, he came out with an album, too, this this year. And just so happened, he was like, hey, I'm going to be in, in uh, Europe you know, um, his partner lit, was living in the Netherlands at the time, and, you know, we had gigs there, and it just so happened that he was available to go on tour. It was just, like, perfect, because he's the only person on the album. And so we actually were able to, to go on tour. So the Berlin show was our first hit, and um, that's going to be coming out in the next few months. Is a live album. Oh, wonderful. With the Brotherhood. Because the thing about the Oracle is like, okay, I did all the songs by myself on that album. You know what I mean? But none of those songs were, that wasn't, it wasn't like, oh, I'm going to make a solo album. The way I was thinking about it, I was recording myself on my phone all the time because, like, that's all I had. You know, I'd be, you know, like, I was traveling a lot. And, um, you know, when I was first writing an actual album, they were like, do you have any songs? Because they were like, we want to do an album with you. And I was like, you know, I have all these songs on my phone. And they were like, well, let me hear them. I was like, they're just on my phone, though. You know, and some of those songs were meant to be played with people, you know. Okay. But when they heard it, they were like, no, this is really cool. It's a cool concept. And they were like, you did this on your phone? I was like, yeah. And I just want to so interject. Played, for those that don't know, you you overdubbed, mixed, and performed almost all of uh, the voices and instruments yourself. Yeah, I did, a, mm-hmm. I did all of them. Mm-hmm. Nobody else was around. Um, the only song on there that is with someone is with Asher. And that was um, because I've been on a trip to South Africa. I love to travel. Like mm-hmm. I've just always traveled. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, when I trip to South Africa with my friend Victor, who's also in the Brotherhood now, and um, it was just so random trips. We were just like, let's go. And um, they thought so South Africa, but I knew people who knew people there. So I, I was talking to my for my international friends, figuring what I could link up with. And one of my friends was like, "Oh, you need to meet this guy Asher if you're going to Cape Town." Okay. So we linked by email, and he was so nice. He said, "Oh yeah, I'd love to meet you." And when we got to Cape Town, we met up at this little coffee shop, and we hit it off talk to that because you know we both had shared a shared interest in. Free jazz and black wrestling is like mm-hmm. dissertation is about like free jazz in South Africa. I was like, oh, I was wow. looking for that. I was looking for that because I went to a few jazz jam sessions, a few jazz jam sessions in South Africa. Just to play music with anybody, I didn't care who. And I was like, where's all the, where's that stuff? And he's like, he told me all the history about how like some of the out jazz. Uh, avant-garde musicians mm-hmm. were, lots of them were exiled because of apartheid and stuff from the country. And so anyway, we had like this shared interest in that. And then he was just like, you got your instrument with you? I'm like, yeah. He's like, you want to come to my house and play? I'm like, yeah. So I went to his house. And what you hear on the album is that jam session. I literally went there and I just pressed voice memo on my iPhone. And that was really, I think we only known each other for maybe about 10, 20 minutes. Okay. And, and can I state his full why, name for the record? His name, you can help me out. Asher, yes. Samiso. Asher. Samiso. Yes, Samiso. 
God bless you. Oh, thank you very much. Um, and again, God bless you, yeah. and as you mentioned, he was the only musician you collaborated with on the Oracle mm -hmm. on the track yes. Cape Town. Cape Town, because we literally made Cape Town. And one of the reasons why I sent that to the label was because I wanted the world to know how important it is to meet up with people and just play music. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Because out of that jam session. You know, and it, it just so happened too when when I went to the Netherlands with Isaiah, mm -hmm. Asher happened to be available because he was going to meet his partner there anyway. So he was there, and it's just like from that one little jam session with us, we've been on tour together. He has a vinyl album out right now, and mm -hmm. I just really wanted the world to know that it's just easy to get with your friends and play music, not so that you can just do things. You just never know what's going to happen from those types of situations you know okay so um, i'm super grateful to man but yeah the it, it, that's really how the album came together it was just what did i kid. what did asher bring out you musically um that you didn't know was there i think we we re-resonated very strongly with each other like it was like how can i put it there's some musicians who just really let themselves go in the music, you know what I mean? I'm mm -hmm. like that. Like, after a while, it's not about notes on the page or anything else. It's about just creative expression. And Asher does that. And we're both very technical. You know, like, we know our stuff. We know our, you know, you can tell that we've studied music extensively. But I think even just in general, on my own personal musical journey, um, I, my, my musical struggle in the past, was being confident in myself. Mm -hmm. You know, like I used to play and very judgmental about me as a musician. I'm like, oh, I'm not good enough, better than that. You know, I've been playing for years and years and years. Um, it was really like the free jazz thing that really opened that creativity. It was just that sauce that I was missing because I was really good at reading music. Mm -hmm. You know, I studied music so extensively. Um, but I had a problem. I didn't know how to really, if you took the page away, I didn't know how to play, and it wasn't until I started getting into the free jazz, avant-garde stuff that I was able to express myself. And it was kind of like the same with Asher. You know, he had in his head, uh, because he didn't really get, like, the formal, formal training that, you know, mm -hmm. all the cops, the people in South Africa, like, go to school and they go to their jazz studies. But he was playing extensively all kinds of different styles. And he was very talented. So I think both of us, and it's funny that you mentioned that because after that jam session, I got this beautiful email from Asher, like after that, and he just told me how wonderful it was to be able to play and not feel like there was any judgment and that he could completely be himself because he felt like he had a lot to say musically. Mm -hmm. And he does. I mean, if you listen to, he has a new album, I definitely am, I, recommend you get his album. And what's the name of it's his album? Incredible. It's called Dialectic Soul. Okay. He's also a scholar. So like the music is his research as well. Okay. So there's a whole kind of like theoretical, um, philosophical approach to his music that he explains in detail about this record, Dialectic Soul, which is a uh, you know philosophical thought process. Um but the music is woo it's so good. Okay. Um, so, like, I both kind of, like, on that level of, like, where it's not just us playing music, but it's the theory behind the music. It's the, all of that, and us being able to just, like, get in, and, like, we were just completely one with each other, kind of, like, finishing each other's musical sentences and all sorts of stuff coming out. Okay. Um, so, I, I will never forget that experience with him. It, I knew it was something special. That's why mm -hmm. I was like, let me make sure I record this. <laughs> I knew it was going to be magic. I knew it. Okay. May I, I want to get back to you and, and discover, how has Chicago influenced your compositions? Very much so. Chicago, um, you know, because when I was in Kentucky, mm -hmm. um, I actually did not want to move because, you know, because we traveled so much, mm -hmm. I was finally feeling very, once we used to perform at art school, mm -hmm. a really good school where I knew, like, that's when I knew early on, like, I wanted to do music, like, because I wanted to be in an orchestra. I wanted to, you know, I was obsessed with classical music. You know, I listened to it so much as a young girl. 
and I love the way it made me feel. And so I was really getting, you know, really good, like just growing with that school. And then we had, we moved here, and I was not the kid. They're like, oh, I don't want to move, mm-hmm. you know. But I was so glad we did because I don't think I would have uh, discovered this free jazz thing. Mm-hmm. Really, that was just like the missing ingredient to my musicality, you know. And that took some years to get to that point. You know, I, was, I went to school, and you know, I was, I went to, I was a clarinet major, mm-hmm. and I went, and I was an education major, and I started working, and, and I started getting into uh, hip hop. So, I, like, I did, I, I produced and, and do hip hop beats and rap. And, and I hear like that, that in, which is just competition. I hear that in your music as well. I hear all those influences. Oh, yeah. Yeah, 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 definitely. Yeah. 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 You know, I just love black music. Like to me, it's just all black music. You know, any music that a black person makes, whether it's jazz, it's, 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 it's just, yes, it is. Black music is jazz. Black music is hip hop. It's not all these genres. It's black music to the black person made it. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not nothing like. discovered the clarinet? I was 11. Okay. And um, okay. that's what I, I started on piano first. Okay. And um, that really helped me because, mm-hmm. you know, being about piano, that's what I really wanted to play. And, but it was it was hard for me when I, I started that. Yeah, I was like the same age, like 10, 11. And I was so excited. We had just come back from Africa. I was so excited. I was like, please, give me piano lessons. I want to play piano. I was like mm-hmm. bugging my parents. And so I finally got piano lessons, and I was terrible. Like, my sister was killing it. Mm. <laughs> my sister was just like, someone ain't killing it. And I had to struggle each week for lessons. But, you know, and I was, you know, starting to get upset about myself. And so I saw at school that the band was up there. I was still playing piano. Mm-hmm. I was still checking at it. Um, I wanted to be in the orchestra because, you know, I wanted to play violin. Mm-hmm. I loved the violin. Violins were all done. No, they didn't have any more. Orchestra was supposed to have it. like, well, we got clarinet. You can take this. I was like, I don't want to play this instrument. I don't know what it is. <laughs> you know, and uh, so I went to the library and, um, you know, because I, I, I love Mozart. Like, mm-hmm. I think my biggest influence, like, when I was a kid was, was Amadeus. Because, like, we watched so many movies as a kid in my family. Like, we were movie buffs. And that was like one of the movies that my dad took us to when it came out, which was like 84. And I remember, I was very young, but I just remember like the music of the movie really impacted me. So I always was listening to it. And that's when I saw Mozart as a child. He was playing violin and piano. That's why I wanted to play violin. Mm-hmm. You know, so um, when I went to the library to look up what clarinet sound like, I never heard of it. Mm-hmm. Um, I wasn't on YouTube back then. I was just going in that basement, 
and be there for hours just playing it and, you know, studying it. And uh, I, I learned a lot just from that clarinet and get all of it. How have you made the clarinet your own? How have you adopted it? Um, how have I made it my own? Well, you know, clarinet is an interesting instrument. It's very, it has so many different uh, levels, like from the highest up to the bottom. Mm -hmm. It has such an amazing range. I think it's just like me and the clarinet form a relationship because I spent so much time with it. You know, it's like we're like, it's like my hand. Now, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. I don't even have to think about it. Like, we just respond well to each other, you know, as an instrument musician relationship. And plus, I was in, you know, I was really in band, you know, like, that's why there's, it's important to have music education. Mm -hmm. And um, in Kentucky, and see, I come from a family of educators. My grandmother was an educator, my mom was an educator, and my grandmother was very, very much into the arts. Like, she was such an advocate of that. In fact, the, the performing arts world went to, she helped start it. So, like, being in the arts and being good is very important for us. Those are the activities we did. And so, like, music, it was like I had a job. <laughs> I, was, I was so into band. You I know was what? marching band. I was in all of that. One thing well, I appreciated so I think, when uh -huh. I came out and saw you yesterday, um, Wednesday, and we can discuss this more. Um, you just encouraged like the audience just to play, play, play. Um, yeah. Even if they didn't have the formal training, you know, just to mm -hmm. play an instrument. Um, mm -hmm. I was reading um, in the New York Times, I believe it was the article came out this morning that. Um, less than one percent of uh, the graduates um, of uh, jazz education studies are African American women. Um, yeah, and that's problematic. Yeah, those are the things that are very problematic, and that's why, like, a lot of music I do is very much about protest music and advocating that this music that anyone can play it for, folks, mm -hmm. has a cultural and historical context. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Because like when you go in settings and you see that black music, because that's where it comes from, um, and there's no one representing that aspect of it. There's no one talking about where this music came from or being the authority on how the music has that. Um, it was very problematic to me when I first started like playing on the jazz scene. Mm -hmm. I thought it was a problem. And I was looking around, and I'm like, how come nobody else thinks this is a problem? Mm -hmm. And I know why. It's institutional racism. It's intellectual racism. You know, you walk in somewhere, and you're like, and also the reason why I bring up education is because, especially in more economically challenged areas where black people are, those schools do not have music programs. They don't. I am a product of a growing up in good music programs. That's what I am. So if you don't have a good music program, who's going to be auditioning for the colleges? It's not going to be the, the young children from economically challenged areas. It's going to be the kids who are in areas that are more economically privileged and are able to have those types of music education programs, which generally are not black kids. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And so when you think about those type of structures in place, it's not like someone's like this racist trying to stop. It's just that like we have institutional and, and, and intellectual racism that's still prevalent in most, you know, uh, institutions that we call, oh, the best, oh, Juilliard, oh, oh Harvard, da, 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 da. But I'm like, there's no one sitting there saying, where are they teaching the historical and cultural context of it? Which, which kind of segues you into what my other album, I'm also coming out with another album in January. Because last year for Hyde Park Jazz Festival, I uh, composed the Requiem. Mm -hmm. And um, the Requiem is based off of this, I uh, was inspired by this small, obscure film called The Cry of Jazz. And what's the name um, of that Requiem? It's called Requiem for Jazz. Requiem for I Jazz. Think. And where can we find Requiem that? Or where, where can we hear it? Listen to it. It's coming out in January. Oh, January. Okay. Okay. It's going to be one of my next albums. So I've come okay. out with two albums. 
Okay. I'm doing the Brotherhood Live. And then in January, I'm coming out with the Requiem, uh, which was reported live at the Hyde Park Jazz Festival. Okay. And um, last year, uh, a film company brought me in an astro, hit me up, and they kind of were like documenting me like the whole year. And when they heard I was doing this Requiem based off of this obscure film called The Cry of Jazz, it's obscure but very important film, Cry of Jazz, that explores race racial relationships in jazz. It was filmed in 1959, and it's very interesting because it's an integrated cast. It's so interesting. It's like a bunch of friends, black and white friends together. In 59, they're friends. And they're going into a deep discussion about jazz and whether white people can play with whether black people. It's very controversial. It's very controversial now. You can only imagine how controversial it was thing, which is probably why it's kind of remained in obscurity. Um, but it always resonated with me, and I felt like, wow, this discussion still needs to happen. And so uh, the premise of that whole film was that jazz was dead. And it always reflects me. I'm like, how are you saying jazz is dead in 1959 when that's like jazz's biggest year? You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. how the blue came out. Like he was saying that. Um, but he was saying that dead. And so in my head when I was approached by a high part jazz festival and they said, oh, you can write whatever you want. Um, I started thinking about that film and I was like, well, jazz is dead. He's declaring it dead. Why wasn't there a funeral? And so with that premise in mind, I'd always, like I said, going back to Mozart, Mozart's Requiem was always like, ah, I just loved it. And I was like, I'm going to write a record because record is funeral music. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I basically took the text from the film and then I took the, I wanted to keep it in the context of how a Western Requiem is mm-hmm. made. Um, you know, there's 12 parts. I'm going to write all the things. You want to write 12 movements. <laughs> you already know I can't but I'm like, no, I can do it. You know, I can do it. And, and so, you know, because I like those kind of challenges. And it was kind of draining because the 12 parts of the Requiem might fit so perfectly with the movie, like the text and stuff. And so I wrote it for that. I also wanted it to intentionally be all black. I wanted to use all black performers. Um, for, and I wanted it to be intergenerational as well. So mm-hmm. my youngest, uh, my youngest performer is playing my clarinet also an amazing clarinetist who was amazing and had no dance at her school. That's why I was teaching her. So I was a, there's a very great school here on the South Palette called Musical Arts Institute and they kind of have been filling that role for the community, for students who don't have bands okay. at their school and they can take private lessons there. And what's, and so what's the name there. of uh, the school? It's called Musical Arts Institute. Musical and it's Arts run by Institute. Two, one of, okay. Yeah. Okay. And it's black owned. Um, they just basically bought this small little house, like right there on about 90 cents. And um, they just started having like, look, the voice lessons, piano, speaking piano, mostly piano. But um, I had one clarinet student. She's only 12 years old. I was teaching her and I was writing the red plans. I was like, you know what? I'm going to give her her first gig. I'm going to give her her first gig. And mm-hmm. so, and, I, and since I was teaching her lessons, mm-hmm. I was like, well, I would just teach her how to play the music, mm-hmm. you know? And so, um, and I also had some, some kids from Shy Arts in there, mm-hmm. um, who, I, who I met through Idea. Like, they were mm-hmm. like, like 16 and 17. And I also had elders, you know, Vincent Davis is amazing, uh, professionals here in the city, Sam Nova. Didn't do the basement, uh, but Vincent Davis. So I wanted to show this kind of village community of intergenerational exchanges, you know, because I knew like the younger musicians, the learn some stuff from the older musicians. And uh, it was kind of like, I really feel like, yes, there should be, you know, integrated spaces are great, but it's always good to have some very intentional black spaces because there's something, especially with the context of the movie, because mm-hmm. the movie talks in detail. Um, about jazz and its cultural historical context, how it's not just notes, but it's a way that black people have learned how to survive and it's a reflection of the state of black people in America, like he breaks it down. So exploring those types of very sensitive issues, I knew it had to be a black ensemble. Okay. Yeah. You know, and so um, yeah, that's like the, so both, both of these albums are actually kind of both kind of controversial because my Berlin album 
um, you know, not people they go to Europe and they're like, oh, they're not as racist there. Oh, no. Oh, no, no, no. <laughs> I was appalled by the racism in Europe on mm-hmm. my journey there. What did you appalled. experience? So, like, huh? I said, what did you experience? Um, particularly with this Berlin one, they, they treated, they treated my band kind of bad. Okay. And then when we were walking down the street, you know, I think Europe is okay if it's like one black person, you know, but when you got like me and seven black men, they, we were getting stares, people were saying comments, stuff. Well, we even got, when we were in Netherlands, uh, we were got my, my uh, tour manager, uh, is one of my good friends, so it's just all black. And when we were driving around, we got stopped. We got both of us for no reason, you know, in a drink. Mm-hmm. And, um, I mean, it was just so many instances of just like subtle racism. Mm-hmm. And, um, so most, most of the tour, I was kind of on edge as okay. far as dealing with a lot of, I was very much on edge because I don't, I, racism, I don't have any power to it. Mm-hmm. I don't care, I'm gonna call it out, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And so, this particular, uh, the German, the Berlin show was our first hit. Mm-hmm. And it was just a culmination of like, the way the festival was kind of treating us. And then the way that the hotel was staying, like, I really had a few points where I was just like, I'm not really like a, <laughs> you know, like a person who's just angry most mm-hmm. of the time, but mm-hmm. I went off a few times. Okay. And, and this album, um, it was so crazy because that Berlin show was like our first hit, Passion, that we didn't even rehearse, you know? And then when I heard it, I was like, yo, it was like, what a best hit, you know? Okay. So dramatic. And so, uh, I wanted to put it out and hit up the label. And then we got like all this, it was still kind of like in, the way that they do music entertainment over there and kind of the exploitative nature of the music industry mm-hmm. because the music industry started off being exploitive, especially the artists of color and uh, you know, we're going through trying to really solidify getting all the rights and everything. For this it's it's just kind of a thing. So this I'm really, I'm really gonna challenge the way the industry has been doing music again. I don't think it's like people who are like sinister out there. I'm sure they are. But even you hate black people, they're not gonna get them on. No. What happens is that we, they've been in the habit of being in a system that started off not for black people. Mm-hmm. And so, just because they're in the habit, well, that's just the way you do things. No one's challenging, like, you don't have to do things that way anymore. Or you're gonna have to do better. Or you're gonna have to get rid of some of these stipulations of how you um, try to sell black music because in the end you exploited me. So you don't even try to. You signed. I'm not having it. Okay. You signed with International yeah. Anthem in 2019. How did that mm-hmm. collaboration come about, and how have they supported you as an artist? So International Anthem started. Uh, I met guys to be just being around, you know, like mm-hmm. I would go to shows every day and I was in a band with my friend Garrett Adams, maybe a senior composer, and we did the show, me and her and another one of my friends, I was there lady, who is now the executive director at Last of Art, mm-hmm. and we were in a trio and we were doing the show and Donnie heard us, he was like, wow, y'all are good, y'all need a drummer, can I fight with y'all? Because nobody knows who Scotty, you know, he's like, they're actually at those. Exactly. Nobody knows that he's a great drummer, and you know, like, cool. So we would play music together. And, and, and I'm sorry, what's Daddy his name? The drummer you mentioned. Donnie. Donnie McNeese. Okay. The, um, okay. He's one of the uh, you know executives of International mm-hmm. Anthem, like okay. the main one. And um, so I knew Scotty had this really great, successful record label, but Scotty is my friend first. And that was like, hey, Scotty, listen to my music, da, 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 da. I never wanted to do that because I'm like, that's not what this is about, you know. Um, but I had, I was starting to play a lot more around the city. Mm-hmm. And he came to a few of my shows. And randomly out of nowhere, he was like, yo, Angel, I really had a good time your show. We want to do a record with you. Are you cool? You want to do a record with International Anthem? I'm like, so what do you I'm like, okay. And he's like, well, if you want to do like a whole new record and you've got songs already, that's how it started. I said, well, I got these songs on my phone. Okay. 
Okay. And so what I would say is that they've really been um, amazing. I've, I've never worked. I've never worked with a team that really validated anything I said. Like even though I was like such so into music my whole life, there was still like this sense where people didn't know how serious I was about it. Why do you, you think? Know? Why do you so think like, that was? You know, I don't actually am sure. I don't know why. I was just like always um, very much into music, but you know, even sometimes people not in my immediate family, but like people in my family were like, "Well, you play clarinet." No, I was like, "Y'all taught me what I was doing." Like, here's the like, what are you talking about? You know, so I guess, and I think maybe too, because I moved around so much as a kid, I wasn't like in one place that people only know me, knew me in, that, in so many ways, but even at the record store. People knew me as the record store for And you know what? Isaiah mentioned that. He mentioned he did not know you were a musician. No wonder they knew me as the record store. It's a lot. It's very shocking when people see that, like, now I got, like, this album. Mm -hmm. And and they can see, like, you know, when you hear it about play, they can tell, okay, that ain't an instrument she just picked up yesterday. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know, Mm -hmm. this is no way. And so I appreciate it now because it's like, you know, when people don't, really think that you're, they just think you're one thing, you end up being more than what they thought. It's actually kind of a cooler experience. It but, is. Um, uh, but, yeah, you know, to me, it's just like I've always wanted to do music, and and I've never stopped doing it no matter what job I was at. I was always in doing something musical. That's what I knew I had to do it full time. Okay. My next question, um, 2019 was like a, a, a world... Uh, whirlwind year for you um, mm-hmm. from your from a career perspective. Um, how did it mm-hmm. feel, and what was going on in your head during that time? It felt amazing because mm-hmm. this is something that I intentionally worked up to. Mm-hmm. This is something that like this was intentional. You know, I made a leap of faith about six years ago to pursue music. Like, like I said, I was working a really good job, but I was really miserable. You know, and I was like, um, I had to change my mind about things because I realized I was, everything I was doing was like associated to my job, mm-hmm. getting to work. And what was that, may work. I ask? I'm just curious. Yes, I worked at this uh, high-end uh, lingerie boutique. Okay. Like, and so I'm sitting up here where, you know, I'm working with clients who are just like, you know, they can spend like $500 on underwear. <laughs> you know okay. what I mean? And the thing about that, I've been in so many weird jobs, you wouldn't think like I was just like doing so well out, but I was. And then the mm-hmm. job was kind of like a thing because it was a, my, the owners of the place mm-hmm. um, were connected with Oprah Winfrey. So like, you know, it's like helping you know, women, kind of like a makeover stuff. So mm-hmm. like women come through, we give them like raw makeover stuff. And so I got to go on the Oprah show. I got to travel all over the country opening up stores. So they were like kind of like kind of all, but they were expanding very much, okay. and um, you know, but being making making really good money, and um, you know, I I had a four hundred one k with them. That's how, um, and I forgot I had one. You know, mm-hmm. I, mean? I forgot I had it. It was just taken out of my check, and then one day I checked. I was like, I'm about to retire right now. She was like, No, don't do it. I'm like, No, I'm about to retire right now. I'm going to live off this money for a year, and I'm going to pursue music. Mm-hmm. That was my that was my plan. Like so, like when I think when I talk about taking these leaps of faith, mm-hmm. it doesn't mean that you just say forget everything. I mean, who can? Mm-hmm. But I ain't never been one of those kind of artists. I'm one of those artists who really plan. And I had said, no, I'm going to plan this. I'm going to take this live off for a year. And if I fail, I'm just going to get another job. You know. But it proves so important um, because. I was able to say yes to so many things. I started going to the gym, especially in the city. Anything, somebody say, hey. And then as I would go to these places, I would meet other people. And it's like, you want to gig, da, da, da. That's how everything started. And then me discovering, like, uh, ACM and, mm-hmm. and free jazz, like, really opened up. So that, like, you know, six years later, I've been doing all this stuff, working at the record store. I knew 2019 was the year where I was like, okay, this is me finally being stepping into full-time musician where I'm, this is the only thing that I'm doing is anything it just kept building so the, you know the path I mean? you're building. on now is what you've envisioned for yourself 
Describe for me um, your post Oracle period after mm -hmm. the success of that that album. Um, mm -hmm. So now, uh, what what are your creative influences now? Um, since Oracle, you've released three singles: uh, Voice, mm -hmm. Voice of Heaven, uh, George uh -huh. Floyd, and Transition East. Um, uh huh. Yeah, um, so with this whole COVID era mm -hmm. and how that's kind of changed how we are as musicians, mm -hmm. um, so all my things were canceled. I had tours this summer, so we got to Europe again. Mm -hmm. All that got canceled. Um, but even though all those doors closed, all these other opportunities opened. Like, mm -hmm. this was in Like, hey, we've got compilations, and can you contribute a track? And that's what Voice of Heaven was. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, this uh, wonderful uh, label, Mexican Summer, they were putting together this wonderful compilation for different artists. They were like, yeah, we really love what you do. Um, and so that's what Voice of Heaven came. Adult Slim hit me up. I'm coming out with a single with them. You know, they just said, yeah. I'm telling you, you know what? People sleep on their Instagram and they say sleep on because I get most of my jobs from there. Mm -hmm. I get most of my jobs from social media. Like random people just hit me up. You know, uh, I got another single out with uh, uh, a Zimbabwe artist um, called One's Love. And um, that one just came out of nowhere. And it was just like, what about a you know, Italian proposer? And I didn't know who they were, you know, so like all of these things were just like, the more, I, think, I think the more I do work mm -hmm. and the more visibility I have, the more work comes my way. And that's really what's happened to like, Boy, the Heaven came out, then um, this radio station in Manchester, they hit me, I was like, oh, we're trying to figure out how to do this post, this COVID kind of thing. And they wanted to pair up two musicians from different parts of the world. It's like 48 hours to work on the track. And this, and then, is this yeah, the month? Okay, 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 okay. Uh -huh. And where can we find uh -huh. all your new music? It's uh -huh. all, uh, it's, you know, of course, international anthems. Okay. Uh, there, but then a lot of it is just like, you just look up my name. Okay. It's just all, it's not, it's, they're all from different, you know, things. Like, there's floors with reform radio. In Manchester, uh, with the Radio or, or music that's obscure to me. So 
yeah, discovering, uh -huh. you know, something new. You know, it, it's always fascinating. Um, yeah. Ask, it, ask, well, my next question, what things have you learned along the way about hosting a radio show? I think so the, my, my journey as a musician, I've always been in weird settings. Um, and I've been in these settings to be like, why are you not there? And why am I learning this skill? So, like, me working like 15 years in retail, mm -hmm. you know what I mean? Um, and you're in retail, you learn like customer service and, and all that kind of stuff. And then when I was younger, I was always like, not only just music, I was also in drama. So, like, I was in like all the child acting courses, like we went to the acting camp. Mm -hmm. I think like all of those types of things, it was like being, working with the public and then also like my background and, and drama. Um, I think it just made me confident in being able to express myself okay. verbally, you know? So it's just like, and I was always like, hey, I'm not doing anything with these things. Like I didn't want to be an actor. <laughs> You know, I didn't want to be stuck in retail, but I learned a lot of gifts about how to, uh, you know, just do myself that way. So I think that just comes across when I'm doing the show. Um, I, I, I'm able to just really be myself and, mm -hmm. and show the world, like, when I listen to, I listen to, I'm saying, like, when you're a musician, you're listening, it's also part of the practice. Mm -hmm. You know, and so that's why I have, like, an extensive record collection. You know, working at the record store, I learned, I thought I knew music, I didn't know living. I thought I was a music head. But like, really working there for four years, it was like a university. Okay. I, I, I was to music all day, these old records would come in. And, um, and then also, that was a hub. It was a music hub, so I met everybody from everything. Mm -hmm. You know, I was friends with all the hip hop heads, I was friends with all the DJs. You know, they made me just pick it up. Yeah, you know, I was I was friends with like the elders who do mm -hmm. not want to make the computer. They want to it. They're really And you know what? You, you um, could you can probably answer my next question better than anyone. Is protest music still alive? Yeah, I mean there was just an article. It's funny you said that I just called from the New York Times, so my quote said the other day says that jazz is protest music. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that, um, I think like, for my music, it's always been protest music. Like, I'm say, I tell everybody, I'm like, I know everybody's like, very heightened right now, mm -hmm. but we've been protested. Mm -hmm. All my music has been about things are not right. Community protest is just the first step. It's just like airing our complaint. The thing is, black music, black people do things protesting mm -hmm. for a very long time, not just now. And no one has been listening. Um, and so the nature of my music comes from that era because I feel it so much. Like I, I've always resonated with like Dana Simone because she was always protesting if you understand. And her music was addressed to black people. Um, and when I say addressed, like I kind of get this notion from this amazing cinematographer, Arthur Joshua, who was the cinematographer for a great movie, Daughters of the Time. I'm sorry, what's that name again? You said Josh? Arthur Jaffa. Okay, Arthur. He's a world-renowned okay. cinematographer. Okay. And um, one of the things that he said that I was resonating with was that he would say, my work addresses black people. Okay. Like, that, those are the people who I'm talking to. Anyone can come in and listen. And people can even join. Mm -hmm. And he, he used the example of, uh, of Eric Clapton. Like, Eric Clapton's music, when he's playing a love song, he's thinking of a particular woman in his life. I forget what her name was. But this was, like, the love of his life. Mm -hmm. Now, we all can listen in and join in and even relate to what he's talking about. But he's always talking to her, you know? And mm -hmm. so my music, because of the things that are important to me, what for the issues that happen as a, a woman of color a black woman musician come out the most mm -hmm. in my music. Okay. You know, like the black family is the strongest institution in the world. You know, that's that's an affirmation that I believe the whole world needs to say. And um, that's when I see a lot of the weird racial tension because people are very happy with saying, we are stars, but they don't want to say the black family is the strongest institution in the world. And that always was like, why? Mm -hmm. 
especially when someone's not black, why do you have a problem not, why do you have a problem saying that? Mm-hmm. And I think it's because people think it has to do with, oh, you're saying you're better than someone else. So I'm like, that's not what we're saying. We're, I'm saying an affirmation that the whole world needs to affirm the black family. The black family's struggling. And if you really want to do something for black people, affirm us. Stop saying, oh, I don't want to go to that neighborhood because it's black. Stop being all like that and being like, no. This is, that's why I specifically said an economically challenged neighborhood. Because mm-hmm. that is why you see the problems in that neighborhood. Because they don't have any resources mm-hmm. to be able to, you know what I mean? So, like, mm-hmm. we have to reframe our... And so instead of you looking at a black family in a way, be like, no, it's a beautiful black family. And I'm encouraging everyone to say that. And that's what I said over and over and over again. Because that's the only way we're going to change our mindset about each other. Because the black family, what other races don't understand is, is your family. You're not uplifted. So like, the black family is your family. Stop acting like we something else, you know. So there's a whole bunch of issues that I see that usually comes out in my music, you okay. know. And is it always important for you to create from this perspective? You know, it's not about it being important. It's about what I am, you know what I mean? It's like mm-hmm. who I am. I'm a black woman mm-hmm. in America and have grown up in Africa and grown up all over the world. So it's more like... This is my real experience. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's not like intentional, like, oh, I'm just going to da 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 da. It's more like, this is what I'm going through. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, I, I won't turn it off, you know. And um, that that's just my, my, especially when it comes to music, I'm so passionate mm-hmm. about it. And I really feel like um, black music has just always been so exploited. And, and all the music in the world came from these, um, you know, cause another kind of over thing about my music is the research that I've been doing um, has been about Hush Harbors, which were these services that, um, you know, our enslaved ancestors, when they were in oppression, would go off into the woods in the middle of the night and they would have these services. Now I grew up in church, mm-hmm. you know, and so there's that aspect too, of like gospel music and stuff in my music. And I, I, because I grew up in the South mm-hmm. and, you know, I remember going to old churches with the elders. Now, if you think about it, I was born in 79, right? Mm-hmm. There are elders in that church who were like in the eighties and nineties, meaning mm-hmm. some of them might've been enslaved. Okay. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And um, we would be in these old churches and I would hear music, there would be a state of being that we were going to. You know, like we were singing these old songs, I know the old songs, you know. And within those uh, hush harbors and these old songs, that is where jazz came from. Mm-hmm. That is where blues came from. That is where hip hop comes from. They all come from these old spirituals. So I've been very interested is understanding what that is because I'm not talking about blackness like skin color mm-hmm. because you can have I have a friend she's blonde hair and blue eyed and she's black mm-hmm. you know what I mean so it's not about like, our hair taste that's just superficial I'm talking about blackness that makes something black you and, know what and I mean and I hear I all mean, of no. those elements and oracle yeah. um, I hear um, the yeah. traditional free <laughs> improvisation hip hop yeah. black southern spirituals um, I hear it all. Have, may I ask, have you ever felt pressure to pick a certain style of music and stick to it? Or do you pretty much feel open to explore your own sound um, without fear of how it will be accepted? The latter. I've always been like that. I've okay. always been kind of like, you know, I don't expect people to do what I do, but I know I have to be myself. And okay. I'm... I just have always been like, look, if I'm going to do, I, I don't care if anybody is going to listen to my music. This is how, this is how I knew I love music because it was never about everyone knowing what I do. Mm-hmm. Um, it was about me being able to express myself. And if no one likes it, that's fine with me. Mm-hmm. You know, I like it. You know, <laughs> that's, all that, mm-hmm. that's all that's ever really meant. And so that always gave me the confidence to be able to tell my truth. Mm-hmm. And that's something that I also want to encourage well, because I always felt like, you know, if I show people how fulfilling it is mm-hmm. to be yourself, it's really that's all it is. It's like we're not playing. I'm not playing notes. I'm playing myself, my historical, contextual experience, mm-hmm. my present experience, and the future. Mm-hmm. You know, the future of what black music is. And so my music is very genreless. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, especially when you hear this record, it's like extremely genreless. 
because it's not just the requiem also taking place pieces of the requiem and um, reconfiguring doing some electronic stuff doing some hip hop stuff with with it so it's, it's kind of like a very so it's like classical and hip hop and electronic and avant garde and free like all at the same time and uh, because I don't believe in I can't wait to hear it. Of genres, yeah. Yeah, and you said that's coming out in January. Yes, your latest. Um, so like January, early, early, early next year will come out. Okay. Yeah, you know, so it's not January or March. It's gonna be vinyl. Okay. Um, and uh, you know, I'm very excited about it. You okay. know, and then I don't know what roller coaster ride is gonna happen after this. And, and, and currently, you also perform weekly um, with a host of musicians at uh, 59th and Stony Island every Wednesday. Mm-hmm. Can you tell me a little bit yeah. about that? And how long will that weekly uh, collective continue? Um, probably be there. Uh, probably when the weather starts changing, I'm sure. Okay. Or um, it's starting with Isaiah. So we had done, you know... Um, we had done a protest march. Mm-hmm. Um, so Isaiah and uh, a bunch of other young, amazing mm-hmm. activists and poets and creators mm-hmm. had started the Chicago uh, Black uh, the Chicago Black Artists Union. Mm-hmm. And I was like, yeah, I definitely want to be involved with that. So they led a protest march. It was us just playing our instruments from 58 mm-hmm. in Stoney to in front of the DuSable Museum. Mm-hmm. And we just... You know, we just all got together and played music, and it was really great. And um, where we started, like, there on 58th, I think Isaiah went over there a few times just to practice outside. Mm-hmm. And then he was like, yo, we should do this jam session, call it Royal Sessions. And that's one great thing about this community here. The music community I am is very supportive. We're like a family. And so if any of us has something going on, we're always like, yeah, when is it? Let's do it. And so, um, you know, and plus, you know, like so many people haven't had a chance to hear live music. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's still like crazy, you know, like you have to wear masks and stuff. But being outside, having enough room for people to social distance, wearing mm-hmm. our masks, um, you know, it's been like great to be able to play every week, <laughs> you know, with, yeah. with people. It just kind of started like that. And, you know, people just started coming out. Yeah. And um, we were all, you know, we, we do a lot of stuff on that stage. Like, um, it's just a way that we can explore competition. It's a way that we can explore uh, conducting and ideas because you get all sort we don't know who's going to show up because it's a jam session. So people come there and it's our first time playing. And, um, you know, especially Isaiah, you know, he does a lot of great uh, arrangements. So it is free. It is, but it's also very organized. Okay. You know, anybody can get up there and start like if you have a musical idea and you're like, you play this, you play this, you play that, boom. Or he'll just hum it and you know, you gotta be on your toes. Mm-hmm. You know, you're gonna play it back. And um, it's creating a whole thing. Mm-hmm. So that's why the jam session is important. It's so important. Yeah, I, I had a I had a great time. It was like yeah. the bright spot of my month. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, so I, I definitely recommend people head out and listen and participate as you encourage. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's part of my um, mm-hmm. whole thing. There's, there's certain levels. There's all these aspects of, of me as a musician. There's me as a performer. There's me as a recording artist. There's me as an educator. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There's me as a listener. You know what I mean? And so, like, I feel like those are all, like, as a musician, to give you a very well-rounded career and more opportunities to do music is to, to excel at all those levels. You know what I mean? Like, so to me, education is important. And I know that's where I'm going to get my biggest blessing is if I pour it into teaching. And that's, that's probably the area that I always kind of ran away from. So I'm like, ah! But I was like, you need to get over that because, you know, these kids need educators. They need mentors. And a lot of the people, a lot of the um, musicians you see at royal sessions are young musicians, mm-hmm. like coming right yeah. out of high school. And, you know, we want to be their mentors to, to help them, you know, get to a place where they play themselves as much as possible. And, um, you know, so it's been beneficial in that way, just mentorship. And so I think that also has helped me build my career and build more opportunities that come my way. And so I have some educational. Uh, I've been teaching a Zoom class 
with the Old Town School of Folk hmm. to a detention center, uh, the, the juvenile detention center here. So every Monday I've been doing a Zoom class with about, you know, five or six young men who, you know, were in, in prison or, you know, mm-hmm. they're, they're not, you know, they're, they're juveniles. And uh, we've been, I've been teaching a great black music class. So we're learning about uh, music. And then I, I realized, like, oh, my goodness, these kids do not have any connection to their past. So I really can't start with, with the old stuff. I got to start with. What their, who are their great black music composers. So that's been very interesting research for myself mm-hmm. um, because, you know, a lot of the current black music is kind of hard to listen to. Mm-hmm. You know, <laughs> it's kind of hard to listen mm-hmm. to because of the, the intense nature of some of the things they're saying. But it's made me go and really stop looking at these young um, rappers. People say, oh, they're criminals, da, da, da. they're talking about crazy stuff. And start looking at them as actual composers. Start looking at like what whether we like the context of what they're saying. These are the great by music musicians of today. And so that's yes. really been interesting to go into their music, the drill music, and try to find the nugget of truth that we can talk that I can talk about with them mm-hmm. uh, without being controversial. And it's been very interesting. Mm-hmm. Oh my goodness, like when I looked up like uh G Herbo who's one of their favorites. And everybody, if you look up his Wikipedia, all you're going to hear is about him and gangs and, and not graduating from high school. Mm-hmm. But I uh, investigated a little further, found out this young man was diagnosed with PTSD. Mm-hmm. And then and now his, his next album, his latest album is called PTSD. It's him talking about his struggle with PTSD. And now he's that, he's going, he's from Chicago. He's just opening up mental health facilities so that young people can get some mental health, uh, uh, you know, get some mental health help. And I was like, see, no one would tell them that. Mm-hmm. No one would tell them that. And so I was like, okay, I need to go and really look at all of these artists because no one's all good or all bad. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? They're not all bad. A lot of them struggle. They just want to get out there and make the money and do better for their lives, just like anyone else in America. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, the white executives way at the top of the food chain, they will pay black people to make crazy music. And that's the only reason why these young kids are making crazy music because they know they can get paid. And that's one of the reasons why I only, well, I don't really care about money, but the reason why I want a lot of money is so that I can outbid the, okay. the white executives. I want to outbid them. Meaning, like, if they're going to give a young brother $3 million deal to put out, a crazy record talking about shoot people, right? And I say, all right, he's giving you three. I can give you five to put out uh, in, an amazing record that really tells you truth and, and, and it's an uplifting record. You try to tell me this young brother ain't going to say yes? He is. They just want to get paid and they just want to get out of poverty, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and I feel like the record industry has really taken advantage of that. And it always has. And, and that's because those are kind of things that really make me angry. Mm-hmm. You know, because as I'm teaching these kids in this class, I don't know what any of them there for. They could be raped, they could be murderers. I don't know what they're in there. But when I'm in my class, all I see is like, you know, people like for real. They forget these are not grown men. Yes, a lot of them have been in grown up adult situations. Mm-hmm. But we can still talk about sponge jobs. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> because they're only like 14 or 16 years old. Just like I brought my clarinet out, and I'm like, y'all know this instrument. Y'all know who played this instrument. They was like play it for us. It's like y'all know who played it. Play it for us on SpongeBob. Because you forget they are still like adolescents, you know. And um, when I see them, and in the, in the dialogue we've been having, um, these are not idiot young men. These are these are very intellectual. They're really thinking about them, mm-hmm. about what they're doing. You know, it's just like the pathway. Um, the peer pressure, the struggles of being poor, trying to get out of poverty, um, it, it led them to being, you know, neglect, but all sorts of things, you know? Um, and so, it's, nobody's all good, nobody's all bad, and we can't diss their current music. This is the music that's important to them. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, I, I'm trying to figure out the importance of it. There are some things in there that they talk about. Uh, Lil Dirk talks about being in his feelings. Mm-hmm. So I, 
amongst all the other crazy stuff he was saying, I found that one little nugget in his lyrics about being in his feelings. Mm-hmm. And we talked about that in the class. Like, what does that mean? Mm-hmm. You know, and it got really deep. So, like, I'm, I'm, I'm very interested in, in, in furthering my conversation with the youth and, and getting them into music, learning that somebody who makes beats is not just a beat maker, they're a composer. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Let's, let's, let's reframe how we talk about our youth. Let's stop showing them images of, like, these young men looking dangerous when I found, like, a hundred pictures of them smiling. Mm-hmm. I intentionally, I'm using Google Slides, I intentionally use little dirt smiling, little baby smiling, young shop smiling, because they all, all they see is villain. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? mm-hmm. I want to show them that these men, these young men worked hard to get out of poverty as best as they could. I can't say, I can't agree with everything they say or how they express themselves, but I can't admire them for their determination not to go back to the streets. <laughs> you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So... It's been interesting. It's been very interesting. Well, thank you so much, Um, Uh Ms. Bat Dawid. And may I ask my last question? Uh You changed your Uh name. Um, Uh Why did you choose Angel Bat Dawid? It's so crazy because I wish I had like this very, kind of like, oh, I had like this epiphany. What happened? So my family, you know, we were Hebrew Israelites. So, like, my family, you know, our culture, okay. you know, like, we, we celebrate the Sabbath, Shabbat, and all that. And so, you know, my dad is, uh, Ben Dawid, son of David, right? And so, Bat Dawid is daughter of David. And I always loved David in the Bible because he was a king, he was a musician. I mean, he was the biggest. Bible, which is a, a lot of songs. Mm-hmm. So I always admired him. I always loved the story of David and Goliath, him being so young and all that kind of stuff. And so that's my Facebook uh, name for mm-hmm. a long time. It was Angel Bob mm-hmm. And when I had met Scotty, um, Scotty had asked me to DJ or something. And he just took my Facebook name and put it on the flyer. Okay. And I was like, and I was going to call him up and be like, my last name is Elmore. But then I just stopped. I was like, you know what? I'm just going to let it ride. I was like, I'm just going to let it ride. <laughs> so it was really just kind of more of like a, like very unintentional. But I just do know that like name changes are important to a lot of people. And like when I changed the name to Angel Dr. Weed, I'm not going to lie. That's when all my opportunities really just, okay. I don't know what it was about that, but like just, Having that, like, going into it with that name okay, changed a lot of stuff for me. Okay. Well, again, thank you so much. I've learned so You're much. Welcome.